If you have your Bibles today, you can turn to Colossians chapter 3. That's where we're going to be. I want to talk to you today about the role of repentance. Uh, Repentance is a word that many people have heard. In fact, you hear that word and some of you again cringe and you're like, oh my gosh, he's going to be yelling, repent. And um, you see people on street corners and uh, this word repentance gets thrown around. So I hope today when you walk out of here, you have a good understanding of what repentance is all about. 1970, there's a pastor or a preacher named Jack Hiles. He did a bus ministry and did a great, like an evangelistic. And he came up with this um, statement, and many of you, if you have heard it, it's called Romans Road. We'll put it up on the screen. And if you ever heard of Romans Road, how many of you have heard of Romans Road? Let's take the Romans Road. How many of you have not heard of Romans Road? Great. And you just learned something. So, um, Romans Road to Salvation. This was a kind of a, a method, if you would, that Jack came up with that would help lead people to salvation. And it started off with simply a human problem, which was sin. He would start with Romans 3.23, that all fall short of the glory of God, that everyone is underneath this idea of sin and uh, helping us understand that. Then he would uh, talk someone through this and he'd say, but there's hope in Christ alone, that Romans 5, 8, that Christ who had no sin became sin, and so therefore we can be free of our sin because what Christ has done, so there's hope in Christ alone, no other way to salvation. The human's response, that's Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth, believe that Jesus is Lord in your heart, then he'll be risen from the dead, you shall be saved. And so it's this idea that there's a response to that, that the human has, that you say, man, there is sin in me, I acknowledge there's no way to get rid of this sin, other than the fact that Christ came to take it away from me. And if I confess that with my mouth and believe in my heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, I can know that I am saved. And then finally, the human's result of salvation, Romans 5, 1, that we do not stand condemned anymore. We are free to enter heaven and access heaven for eternal life because simply of what Christ has done. This is the idea of Romans Road. And the reason I start there is because that's where we've been in this series. That's kind of what we talked about. You, you make a decision to follow Christ, but then the sin stuff is still inside of you. And you go, man, I still have these uh, struggles or battles and situations. So what do I do when I've done the Romans road to salvation? We talked a lot last week a little bit about this, what now? I want to kind of continue to press into how do you live as a Christian? How do you function as a Christian as it relates to sin and dealing with sin? And today specifically talking about the idea of repentance. So Colossians chapter 3 uh, Paul is writing to a group of Christians. Yes, that's true. But this, this group of Christians, you have to know, is living in a very paganistic society. In this particular society, what a person believed had no direct correlation with how they behaved. So when he's talking to this group of Christians, he's saying that should be different for you. In the world that you live in and function in, uh, a lot of people say they believe in something, but it doesn't change their behavior. This is the culture and environment, and I know that that is not the environment that you live in, that everyone here, when people claim something, that's how they behave, right? I'm being sarcastic. Of course, not. that's not true. So uh, you see this a lot of times. People say they claim Christianity, but they don't behave like it. They, cr- they claim a certain thing, but they don't necessarily behave like it. This is what it was like in, in this culture, and, and Paul's going to address that head on. 
the Christian faith was actually new to society. Remember, for Paul, he's writing these letters, the idea of living out a, a Christian life was new. I mean, it was this idea of Jew and Gentile and the Christianity movement. This is still fairly new for a lot of these people experiencing it. And this is how you should conduct yourself. This is how you should live. And so Paul's going to call them out ultimately on their behavior. So hopefully you have your sermon notes. If you don't have sermon notes, you can lift your hand and someone will bring you sermon notes and uh, we'll jump in. Also, if you need communion elements, we're going to be doing communion a little bit later on. And so if you don't have your communion elements, if you would lift your hand and hold it up in the air until someone brings you communion. If you want to participate that later on, uh, that'd be great too. All right. So Paul's going to begin uh, Colossians chapter three and here's Here's where he starts. He's, it says in Colossians 3, 1, since then. Now, the reason why I gave you Romans Road was because he's talking to them about their salvation. He's talking to them about the decisions that they've made. So he is assuming he's certainly talking to somebody who's gone through Romans Road. Somebody who's like, yes, I want Christ in my life and I see the sin in my own heart and only Christ. So he's talking to Christians. Okay, so this is who he's talking to. He says, since then, you have been raised with Christ. Notice he says, you have been raised. You don't have to struggle to obtain membership in God's family. Notice this is a promise that you have been raised. This is you have to do something to get raised. As a result of the salvation decision that you made, you are raised to a new life in Christ. So you have been raised with Christ. Then he says, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your hearts simply means seek in order to find. Desire passionately this thing. Seek it out in order to find it. And it's saying setting your hearts, that inner person, the soul, set your heart on the things that are above. And one of the things he mentions about heaven, in fact, in scripture, there's not a ton about heaven. A lot of people have ideas about what heaven, golden streets, and we have wings, and there's golf courses and all kinds of stuff. I know, you know, whatever it is, and nail salons are free, massage tables are everywhere. I don't know, whatever you want to think about heaven. But one thing is guaranteed, you can absolutely see this in Scripture, that Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, that he is on the throne, that he is there, and he will be worshiped, and he will be praised. And he says, I want you to consider that. I want you to put your heart and your mind on that. Then he goes to the mind. How do you see things that are above? Look what he says in verse 2. Set your minds on things above which is different than the heart in a sense. He says, I want you to think about the things that are up there, not earthly things. I want you to think about the things that are above. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ. Set your mind simply means to set your passions and your desires on things that are above. Direct your mind to a particular thing that's on eternity, not necessarily things that are on the world. Paul is saying as a result of simply the decision that you have made to follow Christ in your life, now that you've been raised, meditate and dwell upon this fact. Here it is. That Jesus, the very Jesus who hung and died on the cross, this man who claimed to be God and was with God and from God, that he is seated in heaven. The one that you claim to follow, the one that you want to be like, is in heaven. He is there and he is seated there and one day he will come. But he is reigning in heaven, enthroned in heaven, and I want you to set your mind around that. Write this into your notes first thing. Christians are to view everything against the background of eternity. And this is going to come so important as we talk about unfolding repentance, that a Christian 
as it relates to sin, begin to see, he says, since then, because of all these things, because of what Christ has done, because you've gone through the Romans road, uh, I want you to set your heart, set your minds on eternity. You should begin to live your life through that set of lenses. If I had a different pair of glasses and this is the way I saw before, Paul is saying your behavior should change because you see with a new set of lenses. Everything that you do in life is now filtered through the lens of eternity. This is where I want your minds to be. This is where your heart should be because you're a new person in Christ Jesus. So your eyesight has changed. Your thinking has changed. And everything at the backdrop is eternity. What's the results of this maternal consequence standpoint? The decisions that I'm making, how I impact something, how I serve or how I give. Speaking to serving, let's say. Just let's say we're talking about serving because we're real practical in our church. He says, when you're considered whether you're serving or not, just consider the fact that I'm in heaven and I am watching my servants before me. Just, just consider in the backdrop of the eternal implications. Listen to me. The eternal implications that you have as an opportunity to serve the next generation. Think about the eternal implications of a child that you minister to or care for in a small group who follows Christ as a result of of some of your sowing of that seed of that time and there's eternal implications because of that young child's decision to follow Jesus later on in life, don't experience divorce, have a healthy marriage per se, follows Jesus the rest of their life, their children follow Jesus and their children's children follow Jesus. Think about the eternal implications when you're making decisions. He says, this is what Christians should do. Set your hearts, set your minds on these things that are above. This is where Paul is headed. Put your mind on eternal things. In politics, there's a saying, and you know the saying, maybe you've heard it before, what you stand for depends on where you sit, right? When you stand, if you ever watch those, you know, government and politics, you know, they stand up and clap, or the right or the left, and they stand up and clap. And Christianity, Paul's saying the same thing. We're, We're seated with Christ, we're, we're seated on his side of the aisle, so to speak. And that's no, you know, I'm not pulling a play of what side, but I'm just saying we're seated with Christ. So therefore, we stand for what he stands for. That's what Paul is trying to help them understand. These are the things that Christians should do. Warren Wearsby says this, our feet must be on earth, but our minds must be on heaven. According to Paul for Christian, Christ is his life. Look at this in verse four. He says, when Christ, who is your life, Christ is my life. Paul would write for me to to live in Christ and die as gain, this idea that Christ is my life. And it's not fanatical. Like we've taken that idea and we've turned it into, yeah, but you don't have to be so fanatical about it. For Paul, this Jesus is my life. Then he says, appears that you will also appear with him in his glory. So he says, put to death strong words, therefore whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Then he goes the list of sins again, sexual morality, impurity, and lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. He says, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you also must rid yourselves of all such things as anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Evidently, Paul is saying to these Christians, you should live differently. You cannot say this and then keep living the way you live. That doesn't make sense. This is Paul's push. This is strong language. Look at the line in verse 5. Put to death. If I had your Bible, I would highlight that and circle that. Put that thing to death. That, that translation 
really means to kill off, destroy it, eliminate it, kill it. That's why it says put it to death in English. It's translated. Notice that sound doctrine is not only positive feeling doctrine, okay? I'm not, that's no knock on any preacher that just preaches positivity stuff. I'm just saying sound doctrine has both positive and negative, so there's a balance in that. Like, like sometimes it's hard, sometimes it doesn't feel good, but this is sound doctrine. The New Testament never hesitates to demand the elimination of everything which God is against. In fact, the New Testament, if you read through the New Testament, you'll see that God over and over again, it says to rid yourselves of things that stand against God or go against God. Evil desires. This is the way, think about the word desire. The desire is where we see the will. It's in the soul. These desires, this will. We're going to come to this word will later on. Your will is your desires, the drive that you have inside of you, the desires that you want to fulfill. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. He says you've got to get rid of the evil desires. You've got to change that. Everything has to change and ultimately live to fulfill God's will for your life. So put all that to death. In fact, he's simply saying, put away, kill all of your private desires and ambitions. I mean, he's calling Christians to kill off your personal and private desires and ambitions. Because you are no longer yours. Your life is now in Christ. And this is a hard conversation. This is like... Man, super pumped. Thank you, Paul, for what a powerful letter. Evidently, Paul, for Paul, this was not extreme at all. And I know the tension for most Christians is to think that's extreme. For Paul, he would say, there's no other way. The Christ is my life. This is how Christians should live. Write this in your notes, if you would. What Paul is getting at, there must be, and we see it clear in Scripture, there must be, in the life of a Christian, a radical transformation of the will. In the life of a Christian, it starts in the will, the desire, because ultimately the desire impacts the mind and influences the thoughts, and then the thoughts influences the body. And he's like, it's got to start with the desire and the passion and the will and the drive. This is what a Christian should experience. The will has changed. The desires have changed. And Paul is pleading with these Christians. He's saying, you've got to get to the desires of your heart. There's got to be a shift. Then he goes on to say, and here's what he says. Paul gives the reason why. Look what he says in verse 9. Do not lie to each other since you've taken off the old self. He reminds them, that's gone. And you've put on a new self. And then he says, really important, being renewed, which is being renewed. You haven't been renewed, you're being, you are being renewed in knowledge, in the image of its creator. When a man becomes a Christian or a woman becomes a Christian, a Christ follower, a person, there's a complete change in personality. There's a new creation. Things change. And he says, we're being renewed, which is hopeful for you and me because it's like, We're becoming like Christ, and we're in the process of becoming like Christ. And so I've heard this said before, and I've said it, and sometimes I'm like, I shouldn't say that. But you're like, like, hey, you know, we're just, you know, just trying to progress, you know? You're like, you could pick up the pace a little, you know? I mean, let's be honest. You use, sometimes we could use this idea that we're we're all a work in progress, but you're still stuck in the same sin. And then you kind of use that as, well, I'm a work in progress. For Paul, he's saying, progress, you know. It's time to progress. It's time to move forward. Remember who you are. He says, we become renewed. 
as we're growing in understanding of who he is and the knowledge of our image of creator. Listen, the more that you, he's trying to push on this. The more you grow in this, the more awareness you have of who Christ is, the more your heart and your mind begins to change, the more this will begins to change, and you begin to grow in his image. Becoming more like him, the more you open this, begin to realize who he is. Then he says in verse 12, therefore, as God's chosen people, this is one of my favorite parts of this uh, sermon today, he says, holy and dearly loved. He reminds them they are holy and they're dearly loved. And then he says, so therefore, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you have grievances against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And above all these virtues, put on love, which binds them together in perfect harmony. You have to remember, again, in the community, in the, in the context of which the environment they're living in, the ancient world, these statements were tear down barriers that were in existence. Social barriers, status barriers, racial barriers, right? Barriers, uh, uh, barriers of uh, women being allowed to participate and do different things. And like, I mean, so many dividing lines and barriers. And these words of Paul were strong in this time. I mean, there were slaves everywhere and free men everywhere. And he's like, these are breaking through these lines. Because in the, from the realm of Christianity, he talks about humility. Humility is the awareness of, of my sin, it's of my brokenness. If a person was have to, this word in Greek word, this idea of humility would have been new to them. They would have never understood from a culturalistic standpoint the idea of there's something morally wrong with me. How dare you say that about me? There's this a community based on power and money and authority and status. And I know that's not the world you live in today. Power and money and racial divisions and social statuses and what's mine is mine. We don't live in that world today. He's pushing on. He's like, you shouldn't function that way. He breaks through the lines. And how does he do that? He reminds them, you're holy. Do you remember you're holy? You're God's chosen people. Holy means to be set apart. It does not mean perfect. Come on. Come on. I want you to say right now, no, no, no. Tell your neighbor. Come on, we're going to encourage each other. I just want you to turn to your neighbor. Come on, turn around. Turn, turn to your neighbor. I want you to look him in the eye. Find somebody. Come on, find somebody. If you've got nobody next to you, here, look at me, Owen. Okay, look at me. Okay, good. Right. You're so holy. Because we have, listen, listen. Many of you, 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 how many of you just felt weird? Like, that was weird. I'm holy. I'm not. All right, watch this. Now I want you to internalize. Just say, I am so holy. Yeah, look, look, look. You are holy. If you are a, if you are a Christ, a Christ follower, a, a Christian, I want you to know you can claim holiness today. I am holy. Remind your spouse today when you're cussing at the TV, but oh, no, 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 I'm holy. You said you were holy. I didn't say I was perfect. I said I'm holy. holy. Holy means you are set apart. Now think about this, what Paul is getting at. You are holy. You are set apart, and being real now, he, you are set apart from the world, so don't behave like it. You are set apart. You are holy. Not perfect. You are set apart. 
You don't live like they live. And then he says, man, how do I do that? He says, because you're dearly loved. You're dearly loved. And that's a really important part in this idea of repentance as we talk about today. He says, you are dearly loved. He has to remind them, look how loved you are. And he's talking about his love for them, by the way. He'll talk about that in just a minute and later on. And obviously God's love for them, but they are dearly, dearly loved. Can I just, love is a powerful motivator. Amen? Yes, love is powerful. Remember in middle school when you first fell in love, how powerful that relationship was? Do you remember that? (laughs) I mean, love will make you do crazy things, right? So Will Smith said, I mean, love will make you do crazy things. Love is a powerful motivator, is it? Yes. And his point is, as they grew in love for God, they would grow in their desire to obey him. But he had to remind them how loved they were. It's so important. With that thought, just hold that thought. I'm gonna come back to that. They're so loved, and that love would lead them. I'll come back to this. Would lead them ultimately to live a life of God's will in alignment with God's will. This is the calling of a Christian. Behave this way. Live this way. Remember you're set apart. Remember you're loved. Therefore, clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness and gentleness and patience. Live this way. There should be a change in the behavior. Now, hold that thought for just a minute, and I want to bring up two words. And the two words I'll bring up to you, they're in your notes, condemnation and conviction. Often you hear people talk about the idea that God doesn't want you to feel guilty. How many of you have heard that statement? You know, God doesn't want us to feel guilty. How many of you ever thought that, said that? Raise your hand. Yeah, God doesn't want you to feel guilty. God doesn't make you feel guilty, man. Don't feel guilty. God, okay, that's not true. <laughs> It's not true. No, no, just hold on a second. God is okay with you feeling guilty. Okay, how do you know that? Listen, guilt is more a state of being. It's not a feeling. Guilt is more of a condition that you are in. When someone is on a trial and they are determined guilty, it's a condition they have. It's not a feeling they have. The feeling sometimes does come as a result of being convicted as guilty. Did you know that the scripture says that you are guilty of sin? Anybody not know that? Well, I didn't ask you to raise your hand. Raise your hand if you knew that the Bible says that you're guilty of sin. Romans 3.23, all fall short of the glory of God. You know what that's saying? Guilty. Guilt is a condition, it's a state in which you're being in. And sometimes when you're in that state, you carry the feeling of guilty because you are guilty. Instead, I want to change the word though, because guilt can become more of a punching in the face and a beating you up. And that's often what people are trying to reference when they think about that. Well, God doesn't want me to feel beat up, doesn't want me to feel beat up, so I'm not going to feel beat up. Okay, let's, let's talk about that tension. And I would say, take away the word guilt for just a minute and put the word condemnation. Condemnation and conviction, and I want to unpack these two because a lot of times they can be very confusing for a person about which one is it. Does God want me to feel condemned? Do I feel convicted? What is that? How does that feel? How do I know if I'm feeling condemned or conviction? So I want to kind of talk about that in just a minute. All right, so a couple of verses, Romans 8.1. All right, therefore, 
Paul says, as a result of the Romans road, we read that up in the video, you have no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, if you had a Bible, I would say circle though, for those who are in Christ. That means if you are not in Christ, condemnation is all over you. In other words, you are condemned. You are guilty and still living in that state of condemnation. He says, for those who are in Christ, though, no condemnation. Goes on, Romans 8, 3 says, for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of the sinful flesh to be the sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. The word condemn means a damnatory sentence. Uh, You are sentenced as a punishment. You're gonna receive this sentence because you were guilty. So the, the sentence is death, ultimately. But God, no, Jesus took the condemnation. He took the sin. He took the sentence. He paid the price. He fulfilled it so that you don't have to be declared guilty before God of your sin. Jesus carried out the sentence that was due for our sins. Therefore, Paul says, you cannot be condemned from a standpoint of you know, if, if you're being condemned or held guilty of that for eternity. But that doesn't mean feelings of condemnation won't come. Look what he says in 2 Corinthians 7, 3. After having a tough conversation with the church in Corinth, look what Paul writes, and this is gonna give you so much hope today. Watch this. Paul writes these words in 2 Corinthians 7 to a church that he's had a tough conversation with. If you read 2 Corinthians 5, I talked about that last week, Corinthians 7, 6 a little bit. All right, he's had a tough conversation with this church. And then in verse 7, uh, chapter 7, verse 3, 2 Corinthians 7, 3, look what he says. I do not say this to condemn you because there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Watch what he says. I have said before you that you have such a place in your hearts that we would live or die with you. And I'm gonna go to verse 8. Just skip over to verse eight for just a second and we'll come back to that. Now watch what he says. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. The word sorrow is the Greek word lupe, which means pain, affliction, or grief. It actually means a person's mourning. So let's read the line, this wonderful letter from Paul. Even if I caused you pain, By my letter, I do not regret it. How about grief, okay? Even if I caused you grief by my letter, I really don't care. You wanna read another one? All right, here we go. Even if I caused you some mourning, I have no regrets about it. All right, let's just pause there. I wanna talk to you about the core condemnation though. The core of condemnation. How do you know when it's condemning? We're going to see this in Paul's next couple of verses in 9 and 10. If it's condemning, number one, it's hazy. Here's how you know, because I don't want you to feel condemned, right? How do I know if it's condemnation? It's not God. It's hazy. It's vague. It can't exactly give you the reason that you need to change. You just keep feeling like something's wrong with you, but there's really no specific thing that you know to do about it. You just feel like something's off. And it's just always condemning. That's one word. Another word is it's going to be hurtful. It steals your joy. It steals worth. It basically keeps punching you in the face of your sin. It keeps pounding on you. It's hurtful. Not in a positive way. And I'll talk about that in just a second. But it's, it's hurtful. And it stays hurtful. 
It continues to inflict pain over and over and over again. Number three, hopelessness. The core of condemnation at the end of the day is hopelessness. It doesn't point us to Christ and the gospel, rather it just keeps pointing us back to ourselves and our sin. What's wrong with me? In fact, you may experience feelings like I'm a lost cause. There's no hope here. Obviously, I'll never be able to live that certain way and self-defeating and proclaiming thoughts about yourself and ultimately hopelessness, it leads to death. Condemnation leads to death every single time. It's hazy, it's hurtful, it's hopelessness. But look at Paul's writing again. 2 Corinthians 7, you would say, wait a second, didn't he inflict pain on them? Yes, but look at what he says next. I don't regret it, verse eight. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you. Okay, hold on. For a little while. It didn't keep coming at you, but it hurt for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you become sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. You were not harmed. It hurt. It didn't feel good, but it led you to repentance. Verse 10, look at this. Godly sorrow. Highlight that. Godly sorrow. Godly pain brings repentance that ultimately leads to salvation. Leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Worldly sorrow, condemnation. Worldly sorrow is condemnation. That's not a biblical principle at all. Conviction, on the other hand, godly sorrow that leads to repentance, absolutely a necessity. Conviction is like a pain signal that leads us away from danger. It's what happens when you touch the stove and it's hot. It's a warning sign. Stay away. Sorrow in of itself doesn't produce anything bad feelings, but godly sorrow produces repentance. Okay, so write this into your notes, the core of conviction. How do I know it's conviction and not condemnation? Number one, there will be high clarity. The Holy Spirit, Scripture says, is the one who brings conviction. One of the roles of the Holy Spirit in our life, when we become a believer in a Christ follower, the Holy Spirit will convict us. How do I know when it's the Holy Spirit, when it's me, when it's something else, when it's, you know, someone preach or whatever it might be? How do I know that? One way you'll know it's the Holy Spirit is he's very specific. He is not going to be hazy with what he's telling you to set down. He'll be very clear about what it is. Because he doesn't want you to sit there and stay in it and live in it while Satan says stay in it, live in it. So I'm not going to be specific. I'm just going to kind of keep being hazy with this and keep kind of putting this in your thoughts and your mind. But, but no, no, God says, no, no, I'll be very specific about what it is. And let me just say this. So many times in my personal life, God has called me to set something down. And sometimes it's for a long time. Sometimes it's for a little bit of time. Sometimes it's just to see if, it's, if I'm willing to obey that particular thing. I was talking with a buddy of mine one time, and he said he was on a run. And he's like, breathe. He's breathing. We're just talking. He's like, hey, man, how you doing? Good, good, good. He's like, yeah, man, my beard's getting really long. And I said, oh, that's cool. Yeah, I feel like the Lord told me don't shave it, so I haven't shaved it in a while. Now, now he's, he wasn't being, he was just, and for me, I immediately rewarded that. I said, dude, that's amazing, man. Like, 
you know, you're just trying to do what you really believe that the God told you to do something and so you're doing it. And what I'm saying is sometimes God will tell you to go talk to somebody, go give to something somewhere, or sometimes set something down for a period of time or stop that clearly for all the times. And then many times he says, stop that, don't do that. And then we try to debate whether or not we should. But, 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 and here's how you know. Watch this, watch this. This is how you know. How do I know what I'm doing? Come on, you, let's be real. Because of that desire that you have. And the Holy Spirit is saying, no, 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 no. That is your desire. But I have a different desire for you. Do you trust me? Do you know that I love you? Then set it down. It'll be very specific. Number two, it'll be helpful, not harmful. It'll be helpful. One of the things I ask you every single week is, was today helpful? It's in one of the first-time guest cards. They say, is it helpful? I want it to feel helpful. I want every sermon I preach to feel, that helped me. The Holy Spirit will convict you in a way, and it'll be helpful. That helped me. It helped me become a better parent. It helped me become a better dad. I feel like the Holy Spirit's telling me to stop saying these words. He's telling me to lower my volume, change my tone, do this or do that. He's making an adjustment in me. It's going to make me better, God. It'll bring more peace in my home, God. Ah, that's going to be tough because I really like saying those words, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Right? You know, like, come on, really? You know, I really like watching those movies or whatever. But he's like, no, no, no. I'm doing this to help you. It'll be helpful. And, and finally, it'll be hopeful. It, there's no hopelessness in conviction. It's, it leads to hopefulness. Conviction occurs to convince us of a better way. It's like a correction of a parent. I'm correcting the behavior in order for your own benefit, for your own gain. And it's always based out of love. There's hopefulness to this. Because ultimately, hopeful leads to repentance, which leads to salvation, Paul writes. The word repent simply means to change the way you think. It's metamorphous, right? It's like how we, there's a transformation that occurs. It's a change from the inside. Ultimately, it begins with changing the way you think. Turning to God, you've heard about that, and think about what does repent mean? I was asking these people this week, what does repent mean? And there's different ideas behind it. Repent can be defined as a turning away from. But that all begins in your thinking. You begin to change the way you think and the way you see certain things. And so as we think about this idea of repenting, write this into your notes. Repentance is the very act of coming to God. And again, I'm going to come back to the will of God in just a minute where we left off in Colossians 3. But repentance is the very act of coming to God. I want you to see this. This is so, so, so important. Repentance is not something, never, to be thought of as something we've got to do to come back to God. God is always available. Listen to me. This is important. You can t- can't turn towards God without turning from the things he is against. That's true. So repentance ultimately is the very act of coming to him. It's it's God, I am coming to you about this. That is repentance in of itself. Which is why, by the way, over and over in scripture, the very first word in the gospel is repent. Did you hear what I said? We were like scared of this word repent, I think, in our churches today. We don't want to talk about repentance. It just feels like heavy on us. Repentance is ultimately a change in our thinking and ultimately our actions. It produces a change in us. Repentance, I know it sounds like a harsh word. I know it does. 
But in many, many aspects of this gospel of Jesus, if you pick up the Bible, you'll see the word repent all throughout Scripture. The first word of the gospel is repent. Matthew 3, 2, John the Baptist says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. In Matthew 4, 17, Jesus said, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. When Peter preached the day of Pentecost, he told the leaders in the church and the people around in Acts 2, 38, repent and be baptized. Repentance is ultimately coming to God and turning from the way I used to think and turning to the way that he thinks, getting on a new set of lenses and seeing things differently, seeing it from his perspective. So why wouldn't we embrace repentance in our churches? As In our church family, we should embrace repentance. A lot of times we leave this word repentance for like, if I'm really messed up, you need to repent, dude. I'm okay, so I don't need to repent. I just, I'm doing okay right now. No. No. Repent always. Come to God. And if condemnation is coming, that's not from God. Conviction is coming. Specific, helpful, hopeful. This is repentance because it leads to life. It leads to salvation. That's the point of repentance. That's the role of repentance as it relates to dealing with our sin. See how I did that? Okay. We can begin repenting by replaying God's word in our mind. Let me wrap this up. Romans 12, 1 and 2. How do you, how do you, how do you repent? Oh, I repent. You know, much. I want you to have real practical, okay? And Jesse, if you can come up, it's fine, you can come up now. But I want you to see this. Um, how do you begin repenting? Man, I want to repent. Okay, get real, so make sure I get this clear. If you want to repent, it's like, well, I need to repent of a sin. That's how we typically think about it. I want to adjust your thinking. I didn't say change it fully, just adjust it a little bit. Instead of saying, man, I have this deep sin over here and I've got this really bad thing, and maybe you, maybe you do and you need to repent of that. Or maybe you don't have a particular sin, but there's a struggle or a thing. I still want to turn to God. Watch. Every time you turn to God, you're repenting. I'm just turning to him. I'm going to turn to him on this matter. I'm repenting. I'm changing the way I think about this and I'm going to start moving in this direction. How do you do that? What does that look like? To scream out on your knees, repenting and cry? Come on, weep, wail, you know, cry, you know? Maybe, maybe. I would say it's like this, Romans 12, 1 and 2. You, you replay God's word in your mind because every time you pick this up and you replay his words, you're coming to him and you're taking this and you're replaying it in your mind and you're turning your thoughts into his thoughts. Watch Romans 12, 1 and 2. This is what Paul writes to the church in Rome, Christians in Rome, and he says this, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, note he's talking to the family. Brothers, sisters, we're family here. In view of God's mercy. So that's it. When you take off the glasses and you go, you think about God's mercy. He loves you and you're dearly loved and you're set apart. Ah. Oh. Sometimes you read through scripture so fast, and you're like, wait a second, I missed that. Just take on God's mercy. He does not give you what you deserve. That's mercy. 
you were deserving of this, but he said, no, I'll pay the price. You're so loved by God. Put that view on. Now that you get the view, he says, in view of God's mercy, offer your whole life. Now, why wouldn't you? Because you're so loved by God. So offer your body as a living sacrifice. And then he says, holy, set apart, and pleasing to God, that's how you worship. Just offer it all to him. Whatever you want. (laughs) When I view your mercy, how could I not give that? That's repentance. And then look what he says. This is so good. Do not conform. You know I'm excited when my pitch goes high. He says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Worldly sorrow and the pattern of the world. No, no, no. We don't conform to the world. We're different. We're set apart. Be transformed. How? By renewing your mind. How do I renew? Renew my mind. I told you last week by reviewing his word. I got to renew my mind every single day. Then when that happens, you'll be able to test and approve God's desire, his will, his desires. His desires become your desires, his good and pleasing and perfect will. This is so important as it relates to repentance. The word renewing, I love this, is the word renovation. You see so many renovation shows today. Renewing your mind, renovating your mind. Imagine your mind being like a house that's in shambles and he wants to walk in, like what's the show, the lady, Target now, Hearth and Hand? What's her name? Joanne. Joanna Gaines, yeah. Joanne Chip, I think, right? Just man, they're gonna come into your mind, they're gonna renew it, man, they're gonna make it beautiful. You know? That's what God's word does. Listen to me. He renovates the mind. He takes out all the evil desires, the old self, and he puts a new one. And it's so much better. It's perfect and pleasing and holy. How many need to renovate your mind every day? And you're like, man, I need that every day then, man. Like I wake up and it's like back to messed up again. Sometimes we need that minute by minute, hour by hour, amen? That's why I keep the word on your lips all day long. Pray without ceasing. Think about how important it is that you do that if you're allowing the Holy Spirit to go to work in your mind and think about the things that are above, not earthly things. This is what Paul is alluding to as it relates to repentance. And I hope you take on last thought on repentance. Repentance occurs each time we allow God's will to become our will. The question of Romans 12, 1 and 2 is, who controls your thinking? Is it the world or is it God? Repentance occurs each time we allow God's will to become our will. So I want you to ask yourself the question right now, just thinking like, am I willing to let God's will become my my will? Like, am I willing to remove my desire and let God's desire for my life come in? That's repentance. In every situation, in every circumstance of life, anytime you remove your will and adopt his will, that is repentance. So it leaves you and me with only one question. And it's the word we'll put up. Do you need to repent? In fact, I'll say it this way. Put it up on the screen. I'll say it. Repent. 
And I, and I say that wholeheartedly. Repent. I am telling you, like, like Jesus said it, and John the Baptist said it, and Peter said it, and we echo it today. Repent. That is not condemning. No, it's convicting, maybe. But that's hopeful. Repent. No, remove your desires and your plans and your hopes and all those things and let God fill it. You will find your life thriving that way. There's hopefulness in repentance. And so many of you have been maybe beat up or punched in the face about repent. You were yelled at about repent, 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 repent. You better repent. No, no, no. I'm encouraging you. Repent. Every day, repent. Go to the Lord. Let his plan overcome you. Let his will overtake you. Let his mercy overshadow you. Man. Amen? So, if you want to repent, stand up. If you don't want to repent, that's completely fine. No need. I'm all, why is everybody standing again? Do we need to sit back down and do it one more time? Do you all really repent? No, I'm like, I know what it's like to be you. Like, sit there and say, and you're like, man, if I don't repent, I'm like, shoot, you know, they're going to come, dude, you didn't repent, you know? Do you all really want to repent? I'm proud of you then. All right, let's pray. Okay, I'm gonna give you a second. This is your moment then. So if you wanna repent, then just do so. Repent. Repenting is scary, I know, sometimes, because you're like, man, I want to give that up. Or, no, 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 please don't ask me to do that. <sighs> Can I remind you? You are loved, dearly loved. And if he tells you to set that thing down, it is so for your good. There's so much life to it. That's why if he's saying, start to do that, change that, let go of that language, don't talk to her that way. Go talk to her after service. Call him up when you're done. Forgive them. It, just, it is so because he loves you. Father, I'm so thankful for this church. And we repent. And we ask you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, strengthen us. Help us to remember that you love us. Everything that you call us to do is for our good and for your glory. And even when it's like, oh, I don't want to give that up, I remember. Lord, it's because you love me. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen.